1 Timothy chapter 5, we have been teaching through the book of Timothy, line upon line, precept upon precept, because Timothy is the first of the three pastoral epistles, and it's good to know what the pastors expect to do. It's also good to know why we do what we do. I have never uh, gone to a secular leadership conference. I don't sit down at church growth conferences. I will never go to a church growth conference because it's not my job to grow the church. It's my job to preach the gospel and make disciples. Jesus said he would build his church. Why would I take his job? I got to leave something for him to do. Plus when he does it, he does it by the Holy Spirit, not by gimmicks and secular marketing strategies. Amen. Those things will inflate numbers for a season, but they'll always come crashing down. And again, look at the fruit of what it produces. We're looking at Timothy because it's, it's the apostle Paul telling his young disciple, Timothy, how to continue steering the local church, which at this time for Timothy was Ephesus. We made a couple points we'll review quickly because we've already gone through four chapters. We see over and over again, Timothy is requiring constant encouragement because he's a bit of a mama's boy. Women, you don't marry a mama's boy unless you want to be a mama to a boy. Amen. You want to marry a man who knows where the household is going. And then you don't raise a mama's boy. At some point, you've got to cut those apron strings and let them go stand on their own. Amen. Amen. And that's why God gave kids moms and dads. Because if it was two moms or one mom, and if it was only a dad, he wouldn't have the nurture he needs. But he has to have the touch of both. So Timothy needs a constant encouragement. We can't hardly read more than seven or eight verses without Paul encouraging Timothy again. And when we are introduced to some more of his backstory in 2 Timothy, we see that he, his lineage of faith was his grandmother and his mama, no mention of his dad, who was a Greek or a Gentile. And we contrasted that with Titus, the other pastoral epistle. He is left at Crete to pastor the Cretan church, while Timothy is left at Ephesus to pastor the Ephesian church. And we know that the Ephesian church was Paul's most mature church. And even with the most mature church, with the best doctrine and the most money, Timothy still needs two letters. Titus gets one. Timothy gets two letters, and they're full of constant encouragement with the best church, with the most money, with the most mature believers. Titus gets thrown to the animals at Crete. He gets no encouragement, and he gets a short epistle because it shows you the difference in personalities. It also shows you that there's an assignment for every personality type. And you can't try to be somebody you're not. I'm sure Titus said, I don't want those Ephesians. That's just too easy. As soon as I whip this island nation into shape, what else you got for me? Send me to Rome. Put me in the Colosseum. I'll win those lions and those pagans to Christ. And Timothy might have been saying, is there an easier assignment? We got anything easier than Ephesus? And I'm sure Paul said, nope, that's all I got. Paul also did say in Acts, he wrestled with the beasts at Ephesus, which means it wasn't always easy. So the gospel work had changed something so that whereas Paul is pioneering in the early years, he's wrestling with the beasts at Ephesus being the people. You know, God does call people animal names. You know, the whole seeker friendly thing is you got to be loving. You got to be encouraging. God is not. He is loving. He's not always encouraging. <laughs> you remember Paul said in Galatians, if you know your Bible, if you're not a seeker-friendly woke-tard, Paul said in Galatians, beware the dogs. That's human beings. Beware the concision. If you bite and devour, take heed lest you be consumed one of another. So he didn't just call the religious folks dogs. He then said, you Galatians are dogs too. He called his church a bunch of dogs. That's not very encouraging. I'm sorry, you still nursing on mama's teeth or what? We're supposed to be an army. I didn't realize we're, supposed, we're like this entertainment-driven kinder care. <laughs> if you hadn't noticed, the American church is shrinking. We're not winning any more people to Christ. We maybe are filling easy churches full of bodies, but it doesn't mean they're disciples. We're not equipped for the persecution that's coming. The early church, they rejoiced to go to the Colosseum. We can't even get some of you to come to church. You're fighting the most horrific battles of your life, and you're skipping church, expecting God to help you. He's not going to help you because you're denying him through your lame excuses and your church skipping. Why would he help you? Why would he fight your battles when you won't even worship him? 
We had folks, the early church was so eager to be martyred. They would line up. They would poke the bear because they wanted to be martyred. It's the craziest thing to read about. So the early father said, all right, whoa, whoa, we're dying too fast. And the church fathers put rules so that we, you, if you die, you're not going to be a martyr. And they had to regulate what a martyr really was because Christians were too eager to die for Christ. And we can't even get you to die to the spoon or die to social media or die to your wasteful spending or die to your offense or die to your emotions or die to whatever. In the early church, they, they took those children, wrapped them in tar-soaked clothes and set them on fire so that Nero could have orgies by their light. And I just think I'll stay home and stream. Oh, you know what? I, <coughs> I have a cough. I don't think I can make it to church in three days. Or you know what? I was up late binge watching Suits. I don't think I can make it in the morning. You know what? My little boy had a nosebleed. I don't think we're going to make it Sunday. Do you know how hard it is to pastor people like that? And then, pastor, pray for me. I'll pray you repent. I'm not praying anything else. I'll pray you get right with God because I'm tired of dragging your carcass through the kingdom. At some point, you got to grow up and help me row this boat or you're dead weight and we cut the rope and you become a proverb we preach in six months. But the days are going faster and uh, the time with which we preach your failed life is getting shorter and shorter. Amen. All right. I don't know who's here because the last four weeks, Timothy's taught a lot more sweet. More encouraging. Yeah, a little bit more encouraging. I can feel the heat on this. I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to chapter five. You know, chapter one did some stuff in chapter two and chapter three and chapter four. Really, the theme of Ephesus is, or excuse me, Timothy's don't quit because Christians are going to hell. Chapter 4 starts off by saying, The Spirit speaketh expressly that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, talking to devils, having the conscience ears with the hot iron, forbidding to marry, and abstain from eat meats. Uh, anyway, so there's this warning. Hymenius and Alexander have already been delivered to Satan. They learn not to blaspheme at the end of chapter 2. Paul says in chapter 3, Let's pray for everybody because we don't want them to go to hell. Chapter 4 comes along and he says, But we're not going to be able to stop it all. And that. He's, he concludes chapter 4, though we know the chapters and the verses were not in the original manuscript because it's an epistle. They were added after the end of the first millennium, about the 14th century. He concludes chapter 4, verse 16, by telling young Timothy, his son in the faith, take heed unto yourself. Why? Hymenius and Alexander didn't. Take heed unto yourself. Why? Because some are departing from the faith. Take heed to yourself. Why? Because you must contend for the faith that was once delivered to you. Take heed to yourself. Why? Would well, to quote another scripture, you did run well. Who did hinder you? It's not how you start. It's how you finish. And we're living in a day where a lot of Christians aren't finishing their race. They start with zeal and excitement. Just like the stony ground, they burst up with excitement. Oh, and then when there's any persecution, any heartache, you know what the, the lame thing is? When I'm the hardest oppressor in your life, you are sunk. When I'm the biggest enemy you think you have, you're a fool. When I'm the hardest thing you face, when I'm your enemy, man, alive. You're a low IQ voter, low negative IQ. You just don't get it. You don't get how this kingdom works yet. I'm not your problem. You're your own worst problem. Your vain imaginations, your victim mindset, your laziness, your excuses. These are, I don't have to work against you. You're working against yourself. The devil doesn't even have to work against you. You're doing a great job yourself sending you and your kids to hell with your excuses and your victim mindset. What a horrible inheritance to give your kids. Excuses and victim mindset. So he says, take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Would to God Christians would know something more than just how to operate Facebook and find cat videos. Continue in them. That is taking heed to yourself and to doctrine. There's both of them. Our job as Christians is to always judge ourselves, And we love judgment around here. One of the natures of our God is he is the righteous judge. Teach your kids, I'm going to judge you. And if you did good, I'm going to reward you. If you did bad, we're going to fix it. But don't be like one of these woke, tar, little victim kids who just doesn't like to be judged. Why are you judging me? It's because it's how you get better. The Olympics judge, your professor is supposed to judge, your school teacher is supposed to judge. We've got into this foolery now where kids are allowed to give themselves the grade they think they deserve in college. 
Well, I guess if you pay a university $80,000 a year and you're not getting an education, you should be able to give yourself an A because you bought it. And I'll pay for your education because that's how stupid our government currently is. Apparently, you go to college. The degree wasn't worth the debt, but I'm supposed to pay for it for you. Well, if it isn't worth you paying for it, why should I pay for it? Amen. For in doing this, in doing what? Judging yourself and holding to doctrine, you'll save yourself. I thought I was already saved. Jesus said, if you endure to the end, you shall be saved. If you endure to the end, you shall be saved. And you'll save those that hear you. What if you don't take heed to yourself? What if you don't give heed to doctrine? Then you'll keep talking because we all communicate and you're not going to help anybody around you at all. That brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. The theme of chapter 5 is all about the family relationship of the local church. Chapter 5 begins by talking about family, then it talks about widows, then it talks about elders. These, that's the theme of chapter 5. How we treat one another, how the pastors to treat the family, how we are to deal with widows, or we would say those in need. That was one of the greatest, most needful people in first century um, ancient world, Near East. And then it teaches us, beginning in about chapter 7, uh, verse 17, about the elders. So that's the theme of chapter 5, how we relate to the people in our church. Chapter 3 talks about how we appoint leaders and the qualities they're to have. And there's a lot of family discussion there about wives and children. But this is how we interact with one another. And remember, this is the, a letter from an apostle to the pastor. So this allows us kind of to see behind the curtains of how the local church is to run. Okay, so let's read chapter 5, verse 1. Rebuke, not an elder. Now, this is, again, Paul, an elder, talking to Timothy, an elder, a younger man, but he's still the elder of the church of Ephesus. He tells him, you don't rebuke an elder. The word here, elder, is in reference to older people, what we call, I call senior saints. I can rebuke the young men, but I don't rebuke elders, that is, old, older people, but entreat him as a father. So if I have to correct an older man, and we don't really have any older men. Brother Robert may be one of the oldest men in the church. How old are you, Brother Robert? You forgot there for a second. Almost 71. So Brother Robert may be one of the, our oldest. Mr. John Smith was our oldest. He was 85, I believe, when he passed. When I deal with these men of this age, I, I don't treat them like I would a 22-year-old young man. I got to approach him totally different. Paul is telling Timothy, this is how you deal with the people of your church. He could be, Robert could be just as wrong as a Gadiel, but I'm going to address Robert in a different manner than I address a Gadiel because there's an honor due to an elder man that a young man just doesn't deserve. Amen. And the younger men we approach as brothers. So the fact that I'm supposed to treat every one of you as a brother, now you have to understand that's a, you want me to treat you as a biblical brother because my brother growing up, ma'am, <laughs> we got whipped a lot for fighting and I used him a lot. I just sent him, he was these three years my younger, I'd send him on errands on the bike because I didn't want to go anywhere. I said, hey, go get this for me. And I'd send him off at eight, nine years old. He'd just bike wherever I told him to go down the road a couple miles. We'll go fetch me something. And uh, he just wasn't old enough to understand that yet, that I was using him. We understand that we treat as, uh, younger men as brethren. That is, even, even if we have a problem, I'm to approach you as though we're bound together in a covenant and we're family. Right off the bat, you see that the local church is treated as a family. We use, it's using family terms. Robert is to, when I, if I ever have to correct Robert, I'm going to approach him as if he was my dad. Dad, I love you. I'm an authority over you in the kingdom, but listen, I need you to adjust something. And any man in here, I'm set to treat you as a brother. That is, we're committed to each other. You may not like what I have to say, but I'm the big brother, and I need you to adjust this. And you don't take it personal because it's big brother and it's a family, and we got to make this family work. But I also would ask the question, we have no idea the numbers of any of these early churches. But at some point, the church would become so big, you wouldn't even know who your brothers or sisters were. 
And there is this Jewish tradition of a church not getting bigger than 300. They think it ties back to Gideon and his 300. And when the synagogue, that's the synagogue system was developed in Persia, when uh, Ezra and his body began to figure out um, how they could teach the Bible effectively, the Torah, as it was, uh, to the Jews. Once it got bigger than 300, they, there's, there's this Jewish tradition that they would start another synagogue. Synagogue just means, means assembly in Greek. And the early church adopted the synagogue system, and it is the church today. And the synagogue did not have temple worship because there was no temple in Persia. All it had was worship and psalms. That's when the book of Psalms was codified, was during the Persian, Babylonian Persian captivity. That's when it, they brought all the psalms together, which is why the psalms go back from Moses and David and whoever wrote about when they turned again the captivity of Zion. That's post-Babylon. We were as them that dreamed. That's why there's older psalms in that book. The synagogue system involved worship and then the exposition of the word, the Torah. That's exactly what we do today. The synagogue system didn't have roller coasters or stage production. <laughs> they didn't have like little miniature Colosseum fights because that was the culture of entertainment. They worshiped their God and they expounded on Isaiah. They worshiped their God and they expounded on Exodus. They worshiped their God and they expounded upon maybe the Psalms and maybe, maybe the history of David. And that got the Jews through into the time of Christ. And that, that system helped hasten the coming of the Lord. To, and Peter tells us that we're to hasten the coming of the Lord. I'm not sure we're going to do it with roller coasters on the stage. If you want roller coasters, go to Dollywood. If you want roller coasters, go to the county fair. If you need it in your church, you're running a kindergarten. The elder women, verse 2, we treat as mothers. So, you know, Mother Murdoch here, been overseas with her and Robert a lot. If I ever have to correct Mother Murdoch, I don't come at her like a kid's sister and pull on her pigtails, uh, though I do harass her a little bit like a big sister. Uh, I will approach her gently and say, Mother Murdoch, this is what we need. Or Miss Amy, I tease Miss Amy. She's 15 years older than me, but I treat her like she's 25 years older than me. She, if I approach her, I, I deal with her as a sister. And, we, and it, as a sister means I'm not done with her. I'm not, I'm not going to cast her off. Like, I need this to change. As the pastor of our local family, a family of families, I need this to change. I'm committed to you. We're, we're blood kin in Christ, and you're needful. You're an important part of this family, but this has got to change. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. And that tells me as a pastor that I have to approach the younger women with the purity and not some kind of sensuality. We do have pastors in this region that have had affairs with sheep and stayed in the pulpit. And I think it's sick and disgusting and they have no business in the ministry. And the word purity just means chaste, clean, innocent. And so uh, any minister has to be careful with how he interacts with younger women or any woman his heart may find attractive. And there's nothing wrong with beauty, but you've got to be careful when your heart starts being attracted. There's nothing wrong with saying, boy, she's a very pretty lady. But when your heart starts getting attracted, that's when you have to stop things. You can take things to an extreme and say, oh, I don't notice beauty. You're a fool. It's like saying, I don't see color. Then you're colorblind and we need to get your eyes fixed. I can tell my daughters are beautiful and not just because they're my kids. I mean, if my kids were ugly, I'd say, yeah, that's an ugly kid. We're going to have to pray for him. <laughs> really? I like Justice was born. He came out and went, oof. Well, you can't win them all. Two pretty girls. I mean, at least he's a boy. If this was a daughter, this would be rough. And for like the first six months, I thought, well, you know, can't win them all. We were kind of just shooting craps there. Uh, we eventually <laughs> rolled some bad genes. Yeah, you know. We'll work on his character. That's what we'll do. That's honestly, I was thinking this. He's turned out pretty good. But I was honest. You know, I didn't think he was the best looking kid. He's gotten to be pretty cute. Uh, you know, he'll grow into those ears eventually. Yeah, I'm pretty. <laughs> My wife's. <clears throat> the younger women you treat as sisters too, with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. So we quickly jump off of verse 1 and 2, which, which lays the framework that the church family is a family. And we, we use this term of brothers and sisters. And that's why I have a very strong personal conviction that local churches shouldn't get past a certain point. I think it's different from pastor to pastor. But if I ever lose 
feel or lose touch of what's going on in the congregation, that's where my limit is. And ironically enough, most of my pastor friends that have large churches, they've all said in passing, without me even provoking the conversation, they said, you know what the sweetest spot was in ministry for me? I said, I don't know what. He said, when I was pastoring 300, maybe 325, man, I knew everybody. I knew their kids. I knew most of the extended family when they'd visit at Christmas or Easter. And now I'm running 1,000. I just don't know anybody. I had one of my pastor friends, his church is running really large. He said, you know what I'm thinking about doing, Pastor Chris? I said, I don't know. He said, I'm thinking about raising the standard and running a bunch of people off. He said, less people, but better believers. That's, he, he asked me, that's, that's biblical, right? I said, sounds very biblical to me. He said, I'm really thinking about doing less people, but they'll be stronger and they'll help build the kingdom better than, better than all this dead weight. So another dear friend of mine, we were debating this about three years ago. I said something that offended him a little bit, but he was mature enough to bring it to me. He said, I disagree. That I, find, I find that offensive. Because I told him, I, I don't think a church should have like 25 pastors. It's like a family having 25 dads. All right, why do you need 25 dads? Well, because we have so many people. And I said, well, I asked him, I said, friend, do you really think everybody on your staff who, call, who is called a pastor really has what it takes to shepherd a flock? His church, his church was 2,500 people. He was one of 10 pastors on staff under a senior pastor who was more like a bishop or an overseer. And I said, you and I both know not everybody, not every pastor on your staff is equipped to marry, bury, dedicate, train, disciple, counsel. He said, actually, we are. And I said, okay. What do you mean? He said, every one of us 10, we are pastors. We're ordained pastors. We're seminary graduates. And our pastor has assigned 250 people to each one of us. And I said, okay, do you hear what you're saying? You're saying that your church is really just 10 churches under one roof because your pastor is smart enough to realize one man can only manage maybe 250 people as a gifting to God. And you're responsible for them and you marry them and you counsel them and you dedicate their babies. So you're really just one church, 10 churches under one roof. And he said, well, I guess you're right. And I said, and how did COVID do you guys? And they lost half their people in COVID. My point is this, we're a family and we need each other. Not everybody's interested in being family. And that's why they go to the big churches where they can blend in and not be a brother or a sister, but be a number. And the Bible doesn't call us numbers. The Bible calls us members in particular, grace gifts. It calls us brothers and sisters, and we're a family. So verse 3 changes it up. So we move on to the next set of discussion of people. So we see a, a general rule there in how we're to talk to each other and treat each other, that is, as family members. And now this says, let's talk about elders, excuse me, widows. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Now, in this passage, you're going to see four types of widows. We don't have widows quite like they did in the early church. And so we might have some liberty in Christ to principalize some of these rules to other people that are in need today. Uh, nor would I say they had a divorce rate quite like we do today, though there was divorce in the Roman world as there was in the Jewish world. But let's just read here. Let me give you real quick. Let me give you the four classes of widows. Widows that are widows indeed. So the first class are real widows. Widows indeed. Then it talks about widows without relatives. You can be a widow indeed, but still have relatives. Then it talks about widows living in pleasure or wantonness. And then you have widows who are young or young widows. You have to keep in mind, not every widow is 95 years old. This church has seen, we had a 21-year-old widow at one point. A widow can be 19. A widow can be 30. Uh, how many widows does a war produce? And those are all young women. Honor widows that are widows indeed, which means if they're not widows indeed, we don't honor them. So this is important because this is teaching us how we treat people in the church and not everybody deserves the same kind of honor. That's critical. We're living in a day where this nation is drunk. Our culture is drunk on equity. Our nation is drunk on equality. And the New Testament does not affirm any of that. 
if you're not a widow indeed, we don't honor you as we do widows who are widows indeed. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Verse 4, but if any widow have children or nephews, and the word is more like descendants, grandkids, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. So let's look at that in a newer translation because requite and piety are not the same words we understand today if you understand what piety is by today's standard. So I'm going to look at the NAS. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to show proper respect for their own family and to give back compensation to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So this says, if they're a widow indeed, let the children take care of them. Use the widowhood as an opportunity to put a burden on the, chi- the kids or the grandkids. And we don't see that in our society because we don't want to be burdened with anything. You can't exactly make a TikTok video about taking care of your grandmother. It's not cool. You can't exactly Instagram and filter that thing up. So we don't want it. We don't want to be burdened with grandma or mom if she's widowed. But the Bible commands it. The Bible says this is acceptable in the sight of God. It pleases him. Verse 5, now she that is a widow indeed. Again, here we have a confirmation again. Widows that are widows indeed. And desolate, that means uh, a real widow, uh, the word desolate means left entirely all alone. This is now, she has no children, she has no grandchildren. Really, she has no one to care for her at all. A widow that is a widow indeed, and desolate, she trusts in God. Of course, she has to. There's no welfare, there's no social service, there's no pension. There's no social security. She has to trust in God. And she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So there is something about widowhood, that a true widow, that forces her to draw closer to God. Now, obviously, the, de- the death of the husband is not a good thing. It's a horrific thing. And knowing the context of the first century, it's a very rugged society. It's not like she can go out and get a job, especially if her husband was caring for her. She really is in a hard way. But it's going to activate her crying out to God. And really, these kind of dramas and traumas and tragedies will always force us to break one of two ways. We either break into Christ and we become more dependent on him than ever before, or we break and fall away. There is no middle ground when trauma or tragedy hits your life. And we could also say these kind of tragedies prove what's in you anyway. She that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure, here's our third type. So we have widows indeed, widows with children, and now widows that lives in pleasure. She is dead while she liveth. Now, the word pleasure there just means riotous pleasure wantonly. And many a widow, a young widow, or even older widow, has rebelled against God and turned to bars or drinking. I've, I've dealt with several widows in our church over the years, and I've dealt with widows that were widows indeed, and we cared for them. And I've dealt with widows, old and young, that turned into whores. Young and old. You don't have to be 25 to become a whore widow. You can be 55 and become a whore widow and just start sowing wild oats because now you're free at last. And now this verse says, she that liveth in pleasure, that, that's not just like you have nice stuff. The word is wanton and riotous living, like the prodigal, riotous living, living in the bars, living, hopping from bed to bed to bed. Paul says, she's dead even though she's alive. And then he goes on in verse 7, these things give in charge or command that they may be blameless. So this is a charge given to the church. I want you to see here, Paul is telling timid Timothy, these are things you command. These are things you charge. That isn't, you know what, let's have a message about how to feel good in every day of Friday and our life's a roller coaster. There are certain things as pastors we're commanded to charge. And any pastor who can't look at his congregation and say, you're in sin, stop it. He's not a pastor. He's a hireling. At best, he might be an administrative teacher. But real pastors, even the timid ones like Timothy, are commanded to make hard decisions and ruffle the feathers of the congregation. 
our nation, I'm a part of it, we're drunk on trying to win friends. We're drunk on trying to get likes. We want a bigger following. The last 15 years of social media has conditioned us culturally to try to gather people. And whatever it takes, we'll follow the algorithm. If everybody's doing this over here and they're getting likes, let me adjust what I do so I can get more likes. All that is is insecurity and narcissism, and it's really probably deep-seated daddy issues. If daddy held you, loved you, told you he was proud of you, you're not going to need anybody else's affirmation because you got your dad's. And he stands behind you and says, I'm proud of you, son. Dad, I'm 90 years old. You're 105. I'm still proud of you, son. Dad, I beat you in the wheelchair race yesterday. Yes, and I'm proud of you, son. (laughs) I have a newer battery than you do, Dad. Yes, and I'm proud of you, son. When you have that kind of affirmation in your life, you don't spend your time on social media looking for friends. I don't have to go to social media to look for friends because I already have them. And, and mine will be at my funeral. And they'll, they'll be sad I'm gone. Instead of, what happened to hashtag hot puppy? They hadn't posted anything in a couple weeks. You don't think anything bad happened, do you? Man, I love hot puppy. They produce the best videos. Man, what a bummer. Hope they're okay. They'll never know. Hot puppy. (laughs) Verse 7, these things give in charge. And this is the fourth time Timothy has been commanded to command his church. This is the Ephesian church, most mature church, most doctrine in any of the epistles given to that church in that epistle. No correction at all in the Ephesian uh, epistle. And yet there's still things that must be commanded, not suggested, not recommended, commanded. This is the fourth time that assignment's been given to Timothy in these five, verse, uh, five chapters. But if any provide not for his own, now now we go to a broader spectrum, not just widows. If any man does not provide for his own family, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now this goes from talking about widows back to the local family, not just widows, but his own house. His own kindred, he is worse than an infidel. So that means as a father, we're responsible for giving our families anything and everything they need. Protection, encouragement, food, uh, honesty. Your family, listen to me, men, your wife needs to be able to trust in your heart. That's probably the most important thing you can give your wife. If your wife doesn't trust you, you have failed somewhere. Women want to trust. It's, I want to trust. I mean, it's not just women. Men want to trust. If, if we can trust, it's just easier. It's exhausting having to be paranoid about what your friend or your loved one is doing. So this is written to men. This verse. Our job is to take care of our household. Protection. Food. That means we should be saving stuff and buying stuff. We're not spending all of our money, men, on our hobbies. We're not wasting money on sinful things. We have a savings account for our kids because they're going to want a car one day or they're going to go to college one day. We should be thinking about that. You're not shocked when your kid turns 16 that they want to go to college. You probably thought about that when you conceived them, and that would have been a good day to start putting money aside. If you can make a kid, you should save for a kid. But then again, animals make kids and don't do much with them. One of my friends, it was a geophysicist I worked with in Indy, Indianapolis. Uh, He was taking Japanese archery, which I always thought was pretty cool. It's an awkward, uneven bow, shorter on the bottom, longer on the top, because the Japanese perfected archery from horseback. So he was really into that. And I said, man, I'd love to get into that. He said, why? I said, because it'd be fun to shoot a bow. He said, he knew I was in Bible school. He said, aren't you? You're in Bible school. Yeah. He said, uh, I said, I like the martial arts, and that's, that's one of the rare Japanese martial arts. I didn't know Indianapolis had a bow. I don't even know what the word is in Japanese, but I didn't know they had that. And he said, isn't that a little violent for you to be a preacher and like martial arts? I said, well, what's violent about it? He said, like, aren't you supposed to love peace? I said, I love peace, but not everybody else does. I said, would it shock you to know I have a bunch of weapons and they're not just kitchen knives? 
He said, that just, he wasn't a Christian. He said, that just seems to go against everything I understand about Christians. I said, well, my Bible tells me that as a Christian, I'm supposed to provide for my family, and that includes safety. And if I can't defend my family in time of hostility, then I'm worse than an infidel. It isn't just food and clothing. But it isn't just defense in a security system. It's also encouragement. It's wisdom. It's lending an ear. It's not nitpicking your kid to death because you're a fearful person worried about what everybody thinks about you because of how your kids are. They don't need that. Sometimes they just need encouragement. You've got to provide everything that a person needs, even a tree. A garden doesn't just need water. It needs sunshine. It doesn't just need sunshine. It needs to be pruned. It doesn't just need pruning. It needs fertilizing. It doesn't just need fertilizing. Sometimes it needs insecticide. Sometimes it needs an herbicide. It takes a lot. And if you're like, if all you are as a dad is, well, I'm watering my garden. I'm watering my garden. Yeah, so do rednecks. Do better. This is a, a very, very profound verse. And he comes, this is a hard smack. To, to the Ephesian church. If you don't provide for your family all that they need, you're worse than a pagan. What an insult. Again, I know we can go seeker friendly and only mind the verses that blow sunshine up our rear end. But then we would be guilty of not giving you the whole counsel of God's word. He hath denied the faith. If you don't provide for your wife and your kids all that they have need of, You've denied the faith. You're a Christ denier. That's a strong accusation coming from the Apostle Paul to be delivered through the timid Timothy to the mature church. And you are worse than an infidel. Let not a widow, now we're back to widows, let not a widow be taken into the number that is the official roster of church care under three score years, that is 60. So here's a very strict law in the New Testament. We don't take care of widows if they're under 60. That's a strict law. Why that number? Do they even live to be that old? I would assume yes. I mean, if they're dying at 30, why would you say 60? So apparently they're living pretty long, especially at Ephesus. But there's a certain age at which, all right, if she's over 60, you have to take care of her. Do it. If she's a widow indeed, which means she has no children, no descendants who can care for her, then you have to take care of her. But he goes on to say, having been the wife of one man, that is, she doesn't have another husband to take care of her. It doesn't mean she was only married once, because what if this is the second time she's widowed? I knew a missionary in Chile. He'd been married three times, but his first two wives died. Uh, if the third one died, I think you just start thinking, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's being married to me. At some point, you just stop. <laughs> He goes on to give a list of what qualifies as worthy of church finances. And this is critical because this shows you the church's job is not just blanket humanitarian work. Right. Hear that clearly because we're living in a woke society where everybody thinks the church's job is to bail out a lazy government. And it's not. Paul is writing in a very arcane society. This is first century this is the Roman Empire. There's a lot of abuses. And he says, listen, we got a lot of widows because the Roman Empire has war. You got a lot of soldiers dying or disappearing, being caught on the battlefield, being enslaved wherever the Roman Empire lost a battle. And you got all these wives who are now born again, part of the church, and they need to be taken care of. And Paul says, we're not just giving our money to anybody. But it is interesting. Where does it start? With the church. We give money to the people in the church that are in need. And, and the most needy class, which is widows. Okay, but not just any widow. Widows that don't have any loved ones left to take care of them. And not just any widow without any loved ones, only if they're over the age of 60. And not just if they're over the age of 60, if they have been faithful to a husband. And if they have been well reported of good works. That means they've been faithful to the local church. If she's brought up children, that is, she's discipled them. If she have lodged strangers, that is, she's given to hospitality. If she have washed the saints' feet, that is, she hosts the saints and takes care of them. If she have received, uh, relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Wow, Paul, you seem like a tightwad. But God's very strict with his money. We don't just give money to anybody. 
The Bible says if you don't work, neither should you eat. And so I'm not really sure why you want to come to my church and ask for a handout when you can go get a job if you want one. Well, you're supposed to give me money. Uh, that's why we're teaching on these qualities, because I know what my job description is. And I'm not just giving you money. Verse 11, the younger widows refuse. Wait, I'm not to help the younger widows? It says the younger widows refuse. Now, again, we could, we could just data mine the New Testament and find only the verses that make people feel important. But then we would be guilty of cherry-picking the New Testament yes, and presenting a false gospel. Yes, so here's a hard verse. If it's a young widow, he says, refuse them. Do not help them financially. Really? I mean, even for me, I'm not even that woke, and I'm definitely not that socialist. Like, I can't even help a younger widow? Well, he gives his reason. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. When they've begun to get in need enough, of course, if they're a younger widow, they're supposed to have a father to care for them. They're supposed to have maybe a sibling that can care for them. All the other rules apply. Somebody else should be taking care of them, not the church. And when they get right with Christ or wanton, that is, they start wanting to do things, they'll, they'll go find someone to marry to take care of them. But he warns that if a widow is not careful, especially a young widow, we're in verse 12 and 13 now, if she's not careful, she'll turn against Christ. Let me read verse, let me back up and read verse 11 in the NASB. Refuse to register younger widows, that is on the registry, for when they feel physical desires alienating them from Christ, they want to get married. So you can start helping them, but you don't know if you're going to finance fornication. Now, in case you don't know, fornication is any sex in between two unmarried people. And the Bible condemns it because it's sin. Fornication between two people who aren't married is strictly forbidden by the Bible because sex is reserved for the marriage covenant. That's why we talk about waiting till you get married. We don't help the younger widows because, number one, somebody else should be helping them. But if you start helping them, you have no idea when you start financing sin. And we drop down here in a little bit. This is don't be partaker of another man's sins. We were actually, I was financing a widow 15, 16 years ago, and she was in a lot of sin, and I didn't understand these scriptures back then like I do now. And we were actually, as a church, paying her pretty good little compensation. And I was in South Africa, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, you are giving her the holy tithe. And I wasn't giving her the whole tithe, but I was taking the holy tithe and paying this widow who was actually living as a whore, she was sleeping with anything that she could pick up at a bar. Um, I was giving her money, and the Lord dealt with me quite severely in South Africa to stop. So we cut her off. Because I don't want to be partaker of another person's sins, and I don't want to finance something that grieves my God. That's why we don't give money to homeless people. I'm not against helping them, but I'm not sure how much we help them anymore. He says, refuse to register the younger widows for when they feel physical desires alienating them from Christ, they want to get married, thereby incurring condemnation because they have ignored their, pre their precious pledge or the previous pledge, which is their first faith. It's amazing how fornication can separate you from Christ. Because the Bible says you're to present your body a living sacrifice. And the Bible says in Corinthians that all sin is without the body. The only sin against the body is fornication. And when you fornicate, you sin against your own body. It's a very powerful spiritual thing. All occultism involves fornication. So that ought to tell you something. The witches and the warlocks and the Satanists, all their practices involve some kind of sexual fornication. And that's why we reserve our bodies for holy matrimony. We keep our bodies pure. We honor God with the marriage bed. There is no other bed God honors, and marriage is between one man and one woman. All right, let's keep reading here because we want to get through this. I'm not sure if we'll get through all of it because we could slow down in verse 13, talking about the young widows and with all. Let me just read it in the NASB. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. So we're talking about young single women. And I might add this at this point. This might easily be applied today to 
divorcees. Because even in our society, a divorcee can be completely abandoned as though the dad never existed anyway. He might as well be dead. A deadbeat dad who doesn't pay child support, doesn't pay spousal support, he might as well be dead. He's spousal abandonment. We might be able to, understanding the cultural context, be able to say the same thing could apply to a young divorced woman. And I, I do want us to acknowledge that Paul is playing to stereotypes here by the Holy Spirit that women tend to be a little bit more idle and busybodied. And so his concern is one that still rings true to this day. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. This is the young widows, we might say the young divorcees, as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also they become gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Now, you don't have to do that anymore. You just get on social media. Uh, we're not innocent in this church. We know exactly what happens on social media. You don't have to leave your home to do this anymore. You know, women gossip on social media, men get into porn on social media because we have two different sins that we struggle with. Women gossip and, and slander and, you know, their, their sins are different. There's not really any women getting on social media to check out buff dudes. I'm pretty sure your algorithm isn't feeding you that. But guys, you know, you could be looking at ESPN or guns or deer hunting and all of a sudden like, the algorithm says you're a guy. Here's a chick in a bikini. And before long, you're down this rabbit hole of porn. Our sins always figure out a way to gravitate us in that direction. And the concern Paul has for these young widows is they're going to end up leaving Christ, catering to some sinful natures. He says they become idle and busybodies, and they talk with people they shouldn't talk with about stuff they shouldn't talk about. Therefore, he says, I want younger women, younger widows to get married. Now, this sounds very sexist, but it's biblical. Let the younger women get married with, with the right guy, of course. That's implied. Have children. Why not? Children are a blessing. Manage their households. You know, you get married, that gives you a man to take care of. You have kids, it gives you kids to take care of. You have a household, that gives you a household to take care of. You don't have time to gossip, slander, or stay on Facebook. If you got a husband and two little kids and a house, I don't know how you have any time for Facebook, Instagram, social media, or whatever. Amen. Staying busy for God will keep your hands out of sin. <laughs> and give the enemy no opportunity for reproach. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. Now, you've got to hear Paul saying that verse 15. He's speaking from experience there. He's dealt with a lot of widows. And he's speaking from experience, having personally, I'm sure as he's writing this, he's thinking of this sister in Christ and this sister in Christ. And he's already lost some of his converts to follow Satan because they were young widows and they got into sin. One of the young widows I dealt with here, her husband wasn't even dead a month and she was already sleeping around in this church. He wasn't even dead a month and she was sleeping around. And when I confronted her about her sin, she magically felt called to go to another church. I rebuked her on a Wednesday and Friday. She texted and said, I feel like God's called me over here to this church. Well, that's real convenient. She was doing so well. And the death of her husband, of course, that's an emotional thing. But that's why you got to keep them in the house of God and you got to keep them busy with the things of God. Uh, yeah. I, I just, I don't know how your husband can be dead in the ground a month and you're already sharing your body with another dude. Did you even love him in the first place? Is this a I miss him sex? Is this lonely sex? Are you not still grieving and mourning? Do you not look at your kids and see their daddy? I don't know. There's some deviant minds out there. And like Paul, some have already turned to Satan and we watched that young lady turn to Satan and destroy her life. If any woman who is a believer, verse 16, has dependent widows, if any woman who is a believer, any man or woman, has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened. Here is Paul saying the church isn't responsible for everything. Even the widows in its own church, Paul says the church is not to be burdened. 
Let's read it again. If any woman, King James says, if any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. That is, that those believers take care of the widows and let not the church be charged so that it may assist those who are actually widows. That tells me as a pastor, I don't have to pay for everything. I don't have to fund everything. I don't have to answer every phone call needing money. You wouldn't believe how many phone calls we get from Star Motor in wanting help. And you know they're just going down the phone book. We used to be CCF, so we got hit first earlier. Now we're in grafted words, so we're a little bit further in the phone book. But bless and blast our search engine because we're the top church when you Google churches in Cookville. But you know, then again, if they got a smartphone and they're Googling me, they don't need my money. So based on this chapter here, years ago, we started telling folks who wanted money, well, what church do you go to? Well, um, well, you know, um, I don't. Well, here's the problem, sir. We only have money to give to our family members. And this is why you need to have a local church, because they're designed to care for you. So I, do you have a church you grew up in? Well, I'm not from around here. Well, a while ago you said you were. So let's get our story straight. Now, this is why you need a local church. We only have so much money, and we are commanded by God to take care of our church. Now, we have helped others, and we've also we had one guy come by, and he said, listen, I'm desperate to get my wife home to Florida, Alabama. My car is broken down. I don't have enough money to fix the car. It was out in the parking lot. Can I do anything? I need 300 bucks. I said, yeah, and we had him. We were working on the kids' wing. We put him to work all day, which then it wasn't really smart because if he hurt himself, then there's workman's comp issues. But he was a hard worker. He worked all day. We gave him like 300 bucks. He fixed his car and left. We'll do that all day long because if you don't work, neither do you eat. He was willing to work. We're just so gullible for gimmicks anymore, whether it's a roller coaster gimmick or an African kid with flies in their nose gimmick or, you know, sad song gimmick. You call yourself a church? No, Jesus Christ does. You call yourself a human? Oh, that's not very loving. You don't know what you're talking about. All right, changes up. Verse 17. Let's see if we can finish this in 10 minutes. We go from elders and fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters to widows, a big section on widows, which tell us, tells us how, how much of an issue this was. That's about 10 or 12 verses that give a governmental charge for how we care for widows or anybody in need for that regard. And then we change again another time. And now we start talking about elders, but this is not the elder from verse one. This is a church leader elder. So verse 17, let the elders that rule well and the word rule there means to superintend or oversee. So we're not just talking about a congregational elder, but someone who is over the local church. Let them be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. That is all, all commentaries, all theologians agree that's pointing towards a local pastor because he's the one who superintends and bishops over the local church. And he certainly labors in the word and doctrine. That's his job. Like Paul, uh, Peter said in Acts 5, it's not good that we should leave the word of God in prayer to wait tables. Go pick you out seven men of wisdom, the Holy Ghost and renown, and let us lay hands on them that they may take care of the widows. That was an issue in Acts in the early church. Let them be worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So we know this deals with money because both passages deal with giving a reward to somebody who's working. If there's any doubt about what the ox labor, uh, treading out the corn is uh, symbolic of, uh, then the second verse, which is quoting Jesus Christ, it says, the laborer is worthy of his reward. We're talking about the local pastor who is worthy of a paycheck. This is what we do for a living. And it says double honor. There are those that you honor. Remember, you, there are certain widows you don't honor. Then there are these here that are worthy of double honor. So in this one verse, or this one chapter, you've got some folks in the local church you don't honor. And then you have those in the local church you give double honor to. You know why? Because there ain't no equality. There ain't no equity. This is a kingdom. This isn't a communistic Marxist utopia. Amen. Double honor. And he says the labor is worthy of his reward. So that just means uh, this is really spoken to like legalistic tightwad churches that don't want their pastor to make any money. 
I think there can be excess. I think when a pastor is making a couple million bucks a year, I think that's messed up. I don't think the pastor should be the best paid person in his whole congregation. But I also don't think the pastor should be the poorest person in his congregation because he doesn't just have his family to take care of. He has everybody else's family to take care of. Verse 19 gives us another rule about elders. Against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And we've had to invoke that a couple times around here. Folks don't just get offended at me. They get offended at the Dalts or the Akahemis or the Blockwalls or the Redmonds, and they want to come to me or they want to go to one of them about another one of them. And they want to say, you want to know what Brother Chad said to me or you want to know what Pastor said to me? And they want to start bringing accusations. And now Paul has to tell Timothy, this is how you deal with those kind of people. Just in case the accusation might be right, it's okay to receive it, but you got to have two or three witnesses there. That's a law from Deuteronomy. You make sure you don't receive it except before two or three witnesses. Because the other inference is from Deuteronomy, if it's a false accusation, you can kill them. Now, Paul's not teaching for murder, but that's the next part of the law in Deuteronomy. If it's a false accusation, whatever punishment they were seeking can be inflicted upon them. It is interesting, Paul invokes the law of witnesses from Deuteronomy and the follow-up laws, if it's a false accusation, the false accusation is punished by death, especially if it's in a capital crime case. That also quotes Matthew 18, that you take your accusation to two or three witnesses and if they repent, then you've gained a brother. If they don't repent, take them to the whole church. If they don't repent, if they do repent, you receive a brother. If they don't repent, then let them be as an infidel to you. But the whole point is we have to have some respect for elders. And this is the second time in this chapter he's warned us against gossip and slander. And the context is we're a family. And as a family, we get on each other's nerves. It's like one giant perpetual Christmas day (laughs) or Thanksgiving dinner. That's what the local church is. And you're going to get irritated. And that's why Jesus says, chill out. That's why the Lord says, hey, don't forget about that two by four in your own eye before you worry about theirs. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, and the elders that sin rebuke before all. So if the accusations are accurate, publicly rebuke them. The context is not just anybody, though it might be fitting, but the context is if the accusation is, is required, if it is worthy of it, rebuke the elder. Stand Michael up and say, church, Brother Caleb and Miss Tiffany have brought an accusation against Brother Michael. Another witness saw it. A second, a third witness confirmed the thing. And so Michael is wrong. Michael, you're wrong. We rebuke you in the name of the Lord. Repent. And he probably will know I'm going to do that anyway. And he can either repent and we restore him. Or if he doesn't repent, we excommunicate him. Because that's what Matthew 18 teaches. Now, this is biblical discipline, which is a whole other lesson altogether, which we don't have the time to get in. Maybe we'll pick up here next week. What about the elders that are having affairs who just, you know, they're on a sabbatical? You know, we're going we're gonna to send him and his wife away for a couple weeks. They need some time. Or, you know, we're, we're just going to put them in a different position. We're going to take them out of full-time ministry, put them on staff. I know pastors that have done that, and it's wicked, and it's deviant. A friend of mine took over a church. He served the senior pastor. The senior pastor's son had a six-year affair with the teenager. The senior pastor's son was 31, started an affair with a 15-year-old girl. The affair lasted six years. She traveled with them as a nanny for their kids. So everywhere they went, the 35-year-old, now 35-year-old youth pastor is having this affair now with a 21-year-old girl. And, you know, mama's none the wiser and the 21-year-old's raising the kids and their nanny. You know, it's just a perverse thing. And when the girl turned 21, she's like, so when are you going to leave, you know, miss? Because that's what she's always called her. She's like a spiritual mom to her. When are you going to leave her and be with me? And the son said, oh, this has never been about you, sweetie. This has been about having fun. I was never going to leave her for you. So that's when she's a 21-year-old girl, been having sex for six years with the pastor's son the youth pastor. So she goes and tells her dad, dad, I've been sleeping with the youth pastor for six years. It started when we were 15. Actually, I think it was when she was 14. So the dad goes to the senior pastor who he has served under for 25 years. And the senior pastor sweeps it under the rug 
takes the son off of the youth leadership and puts him in staff and then end up, everything blew up. The church went from 1,800 people with, I think, 27 acres of land. How much their, their monthly mortgage, it was like $95,000 a month was their mortgage. This was 15 years ago. And they told us, because we were having lunch with the pastor who I'm friends with, who took over. He said, in those days, that money was easy money. That church was prosperous. He said, it all imploded. The pastor went and did prison time for statutory rape, sex trafficking, because he traveled across state lines and had sex with her in different states. That's trafficking. Spent five years in prison. The church imploded. They had to sell everything. They lost everything. Yeah. How about you just stand them up and rebuke them in front of everybody and you do what is right? The, re the, thing, the reason people don't is because the pastor has to have a backbone and he has to be impartial in judgment and not every shepherd does. Some shepherds just want to win friends. They're not really interested about serving Jesus. They just want to win friends and use Jesus to do it. And it's a very corrupt, wicked thing. Them that sin rebuke folk, but before all that the others may fear, I charge thee before, Jesus, uh, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another. Do nothing by partiality. That is, don't appoint, don't rebuke, don't have any partiality in your judgment, pastor. Don't have any partiality in your judgment. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Lay hands suddenly on no man. This is in the context of elders. We don't promote elders, or at least we should not promote elders suddenly. Because if you do, it could bite you in the rear end. you got to prove them. That's what chapter 3 was all about. Prove these elders. Prove these deacon candidates. And then appoint them. Because if not, you could be partakers of another man's sin. Because if they sin, they're going to think you're endorsing it. The church will think, oh, we promoted Jeff and Kimberly, the elders. But look at them now. They're in such mess. This must be okay. Pastor must be okay with it. That's why the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that we're to prove the candidates to make sure they qualify because not every Christian qualifies to take out the trash. The word deacon, diaconus, means he that does the will of another. And yes, around here, you have to qualify to serve because we're not looking for pulses and warm bodies. We're looking for servants of God. 23, wrapping it up. It's 8.30. You're doing good. We're going to be able to stay on target and finish a chapter a night, and you'll be the better for it. Drink. He says, keep yourself pure, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities. This verse gets used by alcoholics to justify drinking. So let's look at context because we do this hermeneutically. The New Testament lets me drink wine. Okay, what verse? Well, Jesus turned water into wine. Yeah, but he didn't drink it there. And you're not at the marriage of Canaan of Galilee, and you don't do work any miracles. Getting you to church regularly is the miracle. <laughs> Let's start there. Then you can take this, and like I say, if you can convert that to beer or Jack Daniel or wine, then I'll let you drink it. But you can't even convert your mouth to holy worship, so I doubt <laughs> you're going to turn this tap water into your liver-pickling preferential drink. Well, yeah, well, Paul told Timothy to take a little wine. Okay, a little wine. You drunk? A little wine. Drink no more just water, but take a little wine for your often stomach infirmity. So that tells us it's medicinal. And he said a little. He didn't say just freely imbibe. You know, all things in moderation. Obviously, he has some kind of stomach ailment. Everybody knows from historicity First century water is not good. You got all sorts of contaminations and dysentery, ulcers, etc., parasites. So wine is naturally an astringent, and it's also alcoholic, so it kills stuff. So he wants them to use it medicinally. So, well, I have ulcers. Well, that's because you drink too much. So how about you take some, uh, I don't know, caopecte, some, I don't know, Tums, and how about some Tagamet? And that way, that's another ulcer medicine. I'm going through my childhood medicine cabinet. What do we have in there? I don't know. I'm just making up stuff. But isn't it stupid? Christians who are drunkards or carnal, they want to look for scriptures. These are the scriptures they look for to do. They never defend, I'm going to go win more people because Jesus says, go tell people. 
They never look for more scriptures to stay in prayer more. They never look for scriptures to stay in the Bible longer. They never look for scriptures to go to church more. They're just looking for scriptures that support their carnality. And they lift them out of context so they can stay carnal. And these folks are lost or just really deluded one. So take it for your often stomach infirmity. Some men's sins are open beforehand. Isn't it interesting? Verse 22 says, stay, stay pure. And then he says, all right, for your stomach's sake, you can take a little bit of wine for your sickness. And then he says, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before them to judgment. Some men they follow. Likewise, also the good works of some men are manifest beforehand, and they, are, they that are hid and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. Right there in between, keep yourself pure in the judgment of sin. He says, all right, I'm going to let you have a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, like Dr. Barclay says, I can drink wine if I want to. And he always asks the hypothetical question, okay, fine. Why do you want to? I can drink beer if I want to. I can drink O'Doul's. It's not an alcoholic. Okay. Why do you want to? Don't you know it's a stumbling block? Don't you know that what you drink liberally, people have to be delivered from? And if you have to, if I have to be delivered, I just, I have a problem with thinking God gives you permission to do something he had to deliver me from. So if you're the exception to the rule, why aren't you exceptional? If you're the exception to the rule for the rest of us, why aren't you an exceptional Christian? And I think you'd find if you put away things that cause other Christians to stumble, you'll become an exceptional Christian. Except maybe you don't want to be exceptional. Maybe you're addicted to mediocrity. And mediocre Christians want roller coasters in their church. So that concludes chapter 5. Started off a little sporty. Ended up a little anti-alcoholic. And in between, we learned about widows. And only the Word of God can take you from sporty to mama to widows to floozies to rebuking elders to being an alcoholic to being done at 835. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the Word of God tonight. I thank you, Lord, that all we need is worship and the Word and the Word and worship. I'm thankful that this congregation is hungry for your presence, not entertainment. We're hungry for doctrine, not jokes. We're hungry, Lord, to have the Word of God expounded to us. We're not really interested in a pep rally TED talk. We want to be taught the divine Word of God. We want it exegeted. We want to understand what you're saying to us. We don't want to be like this country more. We want to be like you more. We don't want to be anything more like Hollywood. We want to be more like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Thank you, Father, for helping us tonight. And I thank you for this time to teach this hungry set of believers. We ask you, Lord, to help us tonight. Help us. May we glorify you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.